Good morning. <laughs> this is the last sermon on Philippians. That was an accurate statement this time. Uh, Pastor Rick, he confirmed with me, is this going to be the last one? <laughs> yes, we are in Philippians chapter 4, and we are concluding our series here on this letter, almost a year after we started, and we're finally drawing it to a conclusion. It has been a series with theme focus on joy and rejoicing, which is the prevalent theme throughout the entire letter. And I have uh, titled each sermon along those lines. And, and so in keeping with this tradition, I've titled this final sermon, The Joy of Every Saint. The Joy of Every Saint. It is just three verses. It's the final three verses of this book. But I hope that as we conclude the series, we may find ourselves reminded of who we are in Christ. Uh, if you were at the adult Sunday school this morning, you know that Ken emphasized um, uh, overlooked doctrine of union with Christ, which is going to be one of the themes we'll be looking at here this morning. Um, so uh, we are those who have been united to Christ by faith, and we are saints, holy ones, set apart, uh, God's people. So those who hope in Christ are these saints. And if we have been saved by Christ, we have reason to rejoice. We have reason to have joy, uh, for we have been united to him by faith. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll be reading from God's word, the final three verses from verse 21. This is the word of God. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints Greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these final concluding verses, although they may seem insignificant, they are your word, they are for our instruction, and we are to pay attention to what we can learn um, even from these three verses. So encourage our souls and Instruct our hearts by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not sure how Paul felt when he penned these final sentences, but a great cloud had been hanging over the letter. Paul was in a Roman prison. He wasn't writing from his seaside cottage overlooking the beach and reminiscing about all the times that he had spent with the Philippian church. He was in a dungeon chained uh, to a Roman guard, awaiting possible execution. And now he was saying his goodbyes to this local church that he dearly loved. Would he ever see them again? Would they ever read another letter from him? Uncertainty loomed as he penned these last words, but his love and his confidence in Christ spilled out onto this page, even here in his final greetings. Here in this final greeting, we catch another glimpse of Paul's heart for these Philippian Christians, which he had himself said in chapter 4, verse 1, whom I love and long for my joy and crown. He will leave them with a singular important idea for the understanding of the gospel. And it is the concept of sainthood. 
As we will see, the term translated as saint or saints in our English Bibles does not refer to some sort of spiritual superhero who has eclipsed regular Christians in their devotion to God and has received special honors or favors from Him by being brought into heaven and skipping purgatory, as the Roman Catholics have had, or by just being a super spiritual Christian. It's referred to every believer, God's people, those who have been elected by Him, brought into His family and been given a new identity, those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, those who have faith in Christ. Every person, regardless of the amount of faith you have or how small your faith is, it is who you are if you are a Christian. And this is what Paul leads this church with. And so we will consider this final greetings in three parts. We'll see to every saint, Paul writes firstly, to every saint. Secondly, we'll see that there are saints in every city, saints in every city. And then finally, we'll learn of the grace for every saint, the grace for every saint. Ah, that was was an old outline. You can remove that from from distraction if you can. So these three parts, to every saint, saints in every city, and then grace for every saint. So let's look at the first one, to every saint. Now following the conventions of ancient letter writing, Paul concludes his letter by sending greetings and well wishes to his recipients, often naming others who also send their well wishes. In modern convention, we introduce our letters by addressing the recipients, and then conclude the letter by naming the sender. That's how we write letters. But in the ancient world, letters were introduced by naming the sender first and then addressing the recipients, as we have in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul opens his letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That's a common convention. And then in the ancient world, letters would conclude by returning to this opening greeting, by adding well wishes and benedictions. That's just how letters were commonly written. And here we see this exactly happening here in chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, where Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, returning to that opening sentence, and then the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, a benediction. This was common even in pagan letters, um, benedictions from their gods or so forth. Um, So we see that Paul is following just general conventions of letter writing. But... (laughs) Paul goes beyond mere conventions. Paul's conclusions reflect much of his situation as well as certain concepts he wants to reinforce to his largely Gentile recipients. Particularly interesting is Paul's greetings to the Philippian church here in 4 verse 21. It can be easily overlooked, but here are elements of instruction for us as God's people. Paul writes very simply, greet every saint in Christ Jesus And there are three observations I want to draw out just from this single sentence. The first observation is Paul's personal affection for this congregation. He writes, greet every saint. The NIV obscures the seemingly minor detail by translating translating it as greet all the saints. But Paul is specific, he's intentional. Greet every saint, saint in the singular. Recently, I wrote a letter to my previous congregation in South Africa on the occasion of the church's 50th anniversary. And as I was writing, I recalled the dear faces of all the saints that I spent almost four years with. And I personalized the letter, recalling many of their names and situations and funny stories, perhaps, over the time that I had with them. I thought of every single person individually. 
I recalled the church in my mind. And I went through and scoured the pulpit from the pulpit, all the seats and where people sat, and it comes back to my memory. Now, on this occasion, Paul doesn't know if he will ever see these people again. And this church held a special place in Paul's heart. Consider some of the affectionate ways in which he wrote to them throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And he continues, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Or perhaps in 4 verse 1, which I've already mentioned, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul loved this church. <laughs> and so he writes very deliberately, greet every saint, every person there. Greet them personally. I think of each pew and who sits in that pew. He is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. And he considers this church in pastoral terms. He doesn't do this in any of his other letters, but specifically to the Philippians because of their special relationship that he had with them. Gordon Fee, the commentator, writes, the greeting is not to the community lumped together as a whole, but to each member of the community individually. Importantly. This is not common, but yet here he addresses them, every saint. Every person is important. Individually. Now the second observation has to do with the term saint. This is where we get into the nitty-gritties of what Paul was trying to draw out. This is where we're going to look at um, perhaps what Paul is trying to communicate in these last few sentences that could be easily overlooked. Because of all the cultural baggage that we have with the term saint, it has almost lost meaning to us. (laughs) We think of a saint when we think of extraordinary persons who stand out because of their exemplary spiritual lives. Or perhaps we just use the term loosely of Uncle Bob, who's just a really nice person and gives me candy at Christmas. Oh, he's a real saint, you know. Or perhaps of an older person in in the congregation whom we really endear and love to and say, oh, that's a genuine saint. We individually use these of people that we think in special categories and terms. But here, Paul is translating an Old Testament term for Israel as the people of God. That's what he's doing. In direct translation, it simply means the holy ones. And this is the sense of being set apart, called out. It is God's chosen people, those who are in a covenant relationship with Him. Now this begins all the way back in Exodus chapter 19 when God had called Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. And there, if you want to flip to to Exodus chapter 19, we will see how God turns them all the way there in the beginning. In this pivotal moment, they finally reach Mount Sinai after having been brought out of Egypt. And here they stand at the foot of the mountain. And the Lord says to them, here in verse 5, listen to this. Now therefore, you yourself, from verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the term here, the holy nation. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reinforces this of the Gentile church, saying that we are, as Christians, that holy nation. We are set apart. And here this term sainthood, the holy ones, is that concept that Paul is trying to draw out and show this church here that you, this largely Gentile church, that you are the holy ones. You are saints. Now, what's really important for us to grasp is the nature of sainthood. It is an identity. <laughs> it is what we are. It is what we have in our position. We are made saints, and we will see this in our next observation by virtue of Christ. But we are made saints because we have been called out by God, regenerated by His Holy Spirit, and brought into a covenant relationship with Him. Now, we can learn a few things from an Old Testament term. Exodus chapter 19, Paul, the, the, the Lord there says to Israel that if you will obey my commands and statutes, you will be to me a holy nation. But here the definition or identity is given ahead of them receiving commands. They will receive the Ten Commandments and they will receive all the other Levitical laws here at Sinai and they will receive the requirements of what they are to be as a Jewish people or as a holy nation, as a called out nation. And so we get this very great sense that when we are purchased by God, we belong to Him and are required to keep the things that He commands. And so it is true for us as saints in the New Covenant. We are called out by God. We've been given a new identity. We are saved from our pagan past and idolatry, idolatrous practices, yet we are brought into this new identity with the expectations to do what God commands of us, to live out this new identity. And Philippians was full of instructions, if we can recall, of how we are to live out this identity in the present world, full of commands, full of imperatives, for Christians to obey. Now, the one distinction that we're going to have to draw out from this Old Testament and Old Covenant sainthood compared to what we have in the New Covenant is what was happening in Philippians chapter 3 when false teachers were coming around and requiring New Covenant Christians to obey the Levitical code. We are not Old Covenant saints. <laughs> we are New Covenant saints. And that means that under this new covenant dispensation, we have a different relationship that we have under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, there was this, uh, the ceremonial laws, which was a sacrificial system, and there was the um, laws that was required to be kept under the um, Israelite legal codes. And those are not the legal laws that we are expected to be obedient to anymore. Yet the Philippians were under that teaching. There was a false teachers coming to the church and telling them that they need to keep the law of Moses in order to be truly saved. That's not true of them. It's now faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul told him. He himself, being once a Pharisee, he himself, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, as it says in chapter 3, um, verse, verse 5, being circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not our keeping the legal code that makes us saints. It is God's regeneration and now in the new covenant faith in Christ who is the fulfillment of the entire legal code. So it's different. So our sainthood is different. But yet, we are still required to do what our God commands. We are to live our identity. We are not excused from that. And we learned that very much this morning in the doctrine of sanctification in our Sunday school, that we are here required uh, to live to the glory of God because we are His special people. We are holy ones. We have been transformed. We have been changed from our past of idolatrous practices, and now we live to him. So that's what we are. Citizens of heaven, children of God, set apart and chosen by him to be a special people. And now the mandate to live this out, not under the legal code of the Mosaic law, but in grace under our faith in Christ. And that brings us to our third observation, which is the reason why Paul calls these believers saints or holy ones. He says, Paul writes, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. You see, if under the old covenant, the requirement was to observe the Mosaic law and the stipulations that comes with that, now we are in Christ. The entire old covenant has reached its climax in the promises of God, finding its fulfillment in Christ himself. Now we are identified no longer by the Mosaic law, but by Christ, being in Christ. That's why Paul said, by being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Now it's our union with Christ that identifies us as these people of God. This is why Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now commentators, like they have too much time on their hands, I believe, and they debate these things, right? There's great discussion as to what this phrase means. Does he mean to say they greet every saint in the name of Jesus? Or does he mean to say greet every saint who is in Jesus by virtue of the union with him? Now, I believe that that second interpretation is what Paul means. And I'll give you two reasons. Firstly, it has already been used in this sense in chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul addressed the Philippian Christians as being the saints in Christ Jesus. He's already used that in chapter 1, verse 1, exactly like that. The saints who are in Christ Jesus. And all commentators are in agreement that at that point, Paul is referencing their union with him. All right? And so I see no reason why Paul all of a sudden would be changing that at the end. <laughs> It's very clear to just follow on that. So that's what Paul means. He's speaking to those who are united to Christ by faith, even here at the end. And secondly, union with Christ is a key theme in Paul, and one cannot divorce our sainthood from our union with Christ. Wherever Paul would address Christians as holy, he does so in reference to our being in Christ. 
You see, Paul wants you to get this right. You are not holy by virtue of your own personal works. You are not going to be doing so much holiness and righteousness that you're going to receive, eventually achieve this special category of sainthood. You are holy by virtue of who you are united to. And that is you're united to Christ, the Holy One of God. The Lamb without spot or blemish. And by His blood you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And you are brought into union with Him. And that's exactly why Paul would tell the Corinthians that you cannot merge a prostitute with Christ. You see that gives a very vivid illustration over there in sexual immorality. You cannot practice sexual immorality and be in Christ because you are united to the one who is holy. Your holiness is on account of your union with Christ. And I want to say this carefully. That's why it it doesn't matter how much faith you have, (laughs) right? It's that you have faith. You might be a struggling Christian. You might be a super spiritual Christian, if you want to use that term. You might really be exemplary in the community, and people look to you for leadership and for counsel, and you go, but, you know, if you are, you would know that you're a sinner. But you might really be on the path of sanctification to such a degree that you walk in such holiness that people look to you as an example to follow. Or you might just be struggling on your faith trying to pursue holiness, stumbling and struggling and trying out. You are a saint, regardless of where you are on the path of sanctification. But it's that you are on the path of sanctification that makes all the difference, that you have faith. I love what our brother Ken said this morning. It was so wonderful to hear him say that. If you don't have faith, you haven't even begun the journey yet. <laughs> you know? We can't talk to someone if they haven't got faith. And that was so applicable because, you know, everyone out there likes to speak about the journey we are all on these days. We are all on this great journey. And, and people refer that to, you know, people in idolatrous practices or whatever place they are in life. No, Ken's right. If you have no faith, you haven't even begun the journey. You are, as he put in illustration, in the middle of the ocean, swimming around, trying to get to land, and you're not going to reach it. But for those who have faith, who trust in Christ for their righteousness, who cast themselves upon him and his mercy, and who recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and even though if they continue to battle and they struggle along, or they have walked upon the the sanctification to such a degree that they are so exemplary, it doesn't matter. You are a saint. You are holy. You are set apart. You are God's people. And you need to take comfort in that. So it's really important for us to understand where, (laughs) how we are defined as saints under the new covenant. Old covenant around the law, new covenant in Christ, around him. The fulfillment of the entire old covenant in Christ. All of the promises find the yes in him, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. 
And so now we are defined as the people of God through and in Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our sacrifice for sin. He is our holiness. And by his precious blood and through his spirit, we are made holy and defined as saints, holy ones, those who belong to God as his special people. And as a result, we are expected to live (laughs) as his special people. Second point. You don't need to bring it up because it's different to my notes. Saints in every city. I want you to write down. Saints in every city is our second point. Paul turns next to a common convention in letter writing, and that is by including greetings from all those who may be familiar with the recipient of the letter. In the ancient world, communication was really at its best with the Roman road, but nothing comparable to our modern forms of instant communications, right? I mean, if you want to hear from someone, it's going to take months, if not years, if they're in a different city, right? Now, couriers were around. The Roman road was invented, and people were traveling, and post was getting around a lot faster in the ancient world at this point in time. So it felt like communication was really at its best when Paul was writing these letters. But to us, if we look back on that, we go, wow, I'm not going to hear from this church in another two years until a letter comes along because, A, letter writing paper is expensive, so you're not writing frequently, and B, you generally had to employ a scribe to write your letters, right? So it was really an expensive process. Not many people did it. So whenever there was someone around that knew of those people as well while you were writing a letter, you would include them. Oh, so-and-so sends their greetings and so-and-so because, you know, you're writing a letter already. And so Paul did this in all of his letters. In this case here in Philippians, no one is included by name specifically But he uses two generic terms to describe those who might be familiar with the church. He says, brothers and saints, right? Paul writes, the brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you. But then he adds something unique. (laughs) And he says, especially those of Caesar's household. Especially those of Caesar's household. Now, this little phrase has caught all the scholars' attention because it gives some indication of where Paul was imprisoned at this stage. They like to debate these fine points, right? Where is he? Is he in Rome or is he somewhere else? Is he in Ephesus? Where where is he in prison? Well, this gives us an indication. And so they get excited about that. But there is something else here that we ought to consider with this little phrase. Not only does it give us an indication of Paul's whereabouts, which is helpful, but it gives us insight into the advance of the gospel. And this is most important for us as Christians. And let us unpack this. Firstly, in chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, Paul indicates both where he is and how the gospel is advancing. He writes this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the phrase translated the whole imperial guard together with Caesar's household here on our text gives us a good indication that Paul's imprisonment is in Rome. All right, we silence that objection from some scholars. Very easy. But what ought to make scholars really excited, and what should make us really excited, is the fact that the gospel had penetrated some of the most culturally significant and important locations of the ancient world. Listen. 
If Rome was a fortress against the mightiest powers of the ancient world, they were the most powerful empire, stood for 400 years. If Rome was a fortress against the most powerful empires of the world, it wasn't a fortress against the kingdom of God. This was the highest temple of idolatry in the world at the time. The Roman emperors considered themselves to be worthy of worship, even commanding that their citizens would worship them. They saw themselves as demigods. And so here in Philippi, Philippian citizens were required to burn incense to the emperor. And yet, here... Idolatry is overthrown in the idol's own house. Now, this would have bolstered the Philippians' confidence in the gospel, especially when faced with the cultural opposition from those who would have, would have them devote themselves to the Roman emperor. Right? Think about it. If even under the emperor's nose in his own house... They are faithful saints in Christ. Then these Philippians who live under far less threat may have greater boldness by expressing their faith publicly. It's very important that Paul mentions even Caesar's household. Secondly, the gospel's advance to the Roman capital showed the promise of Jesus that the disciples will bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this has come to fulfillment. So what Jesus promised all the way back in Acts when he departed and left the disciples, this small band of Jewish believers in him, very small religion, insignificant, has now reached Caesar's own household in just a matter of years. Obviously, there were still outer parts of the world yet unreached, and still even to our own day, there are nations that are unreached, we understand that, but very significantly... This small religion had infiltrated the very household of Caesar in a very short period of time, and that is a marvel in itself. Calvin comments on this. It is no common evidence of divine mercy that the gospel made its way into that sink of all crimes and iniquities. It's a marvel. And Rome was indeed a cesspool of iniquity, especially during the reign of the emperor Nero, who was Caesar at the time of Paul's writing. But even here, the purity and holiness of God's saints dwelt with the hope of their heavenly citizenship amid the filth of lies and deception that was known of the Roman capital during this period. (laughs) If you think our political situation is bad, I'll tell you what, Rome was even worse. And here in the capital (laughs) are believers Now, we don't know who of the household were believers. It could be slaves or servants of the house. The text doesn't tell us. It may not be family members, but it could be family members. The text is not explicit. It just says his household. But it does tell us it is in his household. And we should not, we should never, never undermine the influences of even the smallest persons in the most powerful people's homes. I think of a good illustration in the Old Testament is the story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5 who was a general in the military of Assyria, and, uh, and he had this small little slave, Jewish slave girl in his house. 
And Naaman contracted leprosy, which was a big problem for him because then he couldn't enter the temple um, with, his, with his king. And so he needed to get healed of this. And this little slave girl told him where he could go to be healed in Israel. And off he goes. And we know the story. He eventually gets converted. He comes to believe in the one true God. We must never underestimate the smallest person in the most powerful people's homes. God uses even the weakest because that's how he works. That's the gospel. (laughs) And so we need to take courage from this in our own time. Friends, we need not fret when we consider the problems we have in our own country and the government. We should not fret. Even in Washington, D.C., let me assure you that the Lord has his people there. And they are, sure, working amidst a lot of darkness, but they are there proclaiming the gospel. God is not bound. And the American authorities are not more powerful than he is. We must place our confidence in Christ and his kingdom. And we need to continue to pray for the authorities. But we need not fret. We need not worry about it. We need to have confidence. We can become so negative when we follow the news, whether mainstream or alternate. And media is often a source of our distraction. Let us rather get stories of saints who are actually working in these places and pray for them and rejoice. I know I live just outside of Washington, D.C. and Alexandria. We had a large church, and many of the people in our church were actually working on the Capitol. They were there in D.C. They had positions of very high authority. Some of them were lower means, but they were all working. And these were faithful saints and good Christians. We can take courage that God has his people even in Caesar's household. (laughs) And that's Paul's point. He wants to give this church confidence in the gospel. Thirdly, grace for every saint. Grace for every saint. We now come to the final words of the letter, the benediction. A benediction is the invocation of the grace of Christ to remain with God's people, to strengthen them, and to continue to guide them to their final destination. And here in Paul's letters, these benedictions are found in a variety of different forms, each speaking to the continuing need for saints to receive grace in order to endure faithfully to the end. And here Paul ends where he began. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul opened the letter by writing, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he concludes his letter by writing, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. While we may dismiss this as a casual Pauline closing line, just kind of like a yours faithfully or in friendship or whatever you want to put at the end of your letter, we will be careful to note the context of this letter. Paul's imprisonment in Rome and possible pending execution. Nothing Paul writes is casual. And nothing God pens through his apostles are casual. (laughs) So we need to look at this benediction and what it has meaning, what it means to us as Christians today. What is in Paul's benediction? Well, famously, once again, we go back to the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 to 26 contains the oldest and most famous benedictions in the scriptures and would have been known well by Paul as a Pharisee. It reads this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This benediction was commanded by God to Aaron and his priesthood to bless Israel with. 
And what was the pur purpose? In verse 27, the Lord says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. You see, they shall put my name upon the people of Israel. <laughs> That's what the benediction is doing. Paul opens his letter by invoking elements of this blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then concludes by reiterating that the grace we now receive and the blessing is obtained by faith in Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You see, as grace was conferred upon Israel in the Old Covenant through the mediation of the high priest Aaron and his high priestlyhood, so now under the New Covenant, grace is administered through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> It is how God puts his name upon us as his covenant people. And so, every time Paul writes his benedictions, he is reminding these saints that the Lord Jesus Christ has placed the name of God upon them and that they now belong to him by grace. You see, this is one reason why I'm in favor of saying benedictions at the end of a church service. Because it's a reminder to us that we belong to God and that His grace and peace is with us if we are in Christ. And it helps us go into the week knowing what we are as an identity of who we belong to. And so we should live in light of that. You see, friends, we have been granted a new identity. And that's exactly what a benediction reminds us of. Let's consider a few other benedictions from the New Testament and see how these reinforce our identity as saints. For example, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Very famous one. That's a Trinitarian formula. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You see that it marks us out as who we are as God's people. We have faith in Christ. We receive grace from Him. We have been bound by the love of God. And we have fellowship with one another in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it really teaches us of who we are. What about Galatians 6 verse 15 to 18? For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. You see, not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. You see, that reinforces our identity. And all who walk by that law will have this peace and this grace that comes from the Lord. You know? We are the Israel of God who rejoice in Christ. This is how God now works with his people. Or how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which was read so beautifully uh, this morning. Listen to this one, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Do you see how this reinforces who we are as God's people and what it is that God's doing? that he is working in us by his grace and by his mercy, and that we need to lean upon that grace and that mercy every single day of our lives, and that he is faithful, he is going to complete it. This is what the benedictions are for. And it's exactly what Paul does in this closing. Friends, 
when we read a benediction or hear one pronounced, it is a reminder of us of who we are. We are God's covenant children upon whom he has set his name. And by his mercy, we have been granted access to him through the grace of the new covenant high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saints, made holy by the grace of Christ through the work of redemption. And we are saved by his grace from our sins. We are sanctified by his grace as we walk in holiness. And we will be finally delivered from death by his grace when we are raised to life in the new heavens and the new earth. It is all of grace, as Charles Spurgeon would say. So as we draw the series to a close, we are urged through the benediction to dwell in the grace that comes through Christ. To dwell in it, to dwell on it, to know it. Philippians is full of joy and rejoicing precisely because of what the gospel has done. Firstly, we were sinners, idolaters, and we have been turned into saints, God's holy people. By the grace of Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been brought into union with Christ. And by virtue of His Spirit, we are now being renewed continually into His image. This is what grace is for, to help us walk in holiness, to help us to live out His manner, to help us to be His people, to Help us to glorify him in all things we do. Secondly, we are to reminded that saints are found in every city because God's kingdom will continue to grow as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Whether that's here in Holland, Michigan, or Washington, D.C., or Emperor Nero's household. <laughs> None of these places is a fortress against the kingdom of God. He will advance it. Jesus promised it, and it has come to fulfillment. In fact, I always say that the Roman Empire was overthrown by the Christian doctrine. <laughs> so we need to know that the gospel is not bound. It is advancing, and we need to participate in that advancing by living out that mandate of proclaiming His excellencies, as one Peter would tell us. And thirdly, saints live daily by grace from Christ. We have the means of grace, the various different ways in which Christ feeds our souls, one being the Lord's Day, where we gather again around the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments as we have here before us, or the ordinances, if you want to call it that way. The administration of these ordinances to remind us of the redemption that we have in Christ the participating of those ordinances that will, when we take and eat, it is a visible and physical participation in the reality of our redemption. <laughs> Means of grace. The Word, the Spirit using the Word to apply these things to our lives. The prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing. And we go out from this place, we go to our homes, and we continue to live out this grace by drawing upon it through private study of God's Word, through corporate encouragement of one another throughout the week, through continual prayers and even singing of hymns in our families, these are the means of grace. And we need to draw upon these means, for we need the grace of Christ. We depend upon it. Without it, we perish. With it, we flourish. 
So friends, let us rejoice in the gospel and find joy in the privilege of being called saints. And so live in light of the grace we have received by God's mercy as his special people. Let's pray. Father, grant us mercy and grace and peace in order to live out the excellencies of your kingdom by the identity we've received as your holy people. In Jesus' name, amen.